Father God, I just thank you for this morning. I am so grateful to be here amongst the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. I'm grateful to spend this time with them sharing your word. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be tremendously softened this morning for the Holy Spirit to work. Lord God, um, teach us. In Jesus' name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Some of you may be wondering why we're reading out of Matthew this morning and we're continuing our series in Exodus. In fact, we're moving into our third and final section of what I'll call of Exodus. We said that the first portion of Exodus, um, the first up to after, right after the crossing of the Red Sea, God was preparing his people and leading his people to be a redeemed people, a forgiven people, a people set apart for him. As he showed and put on display his might, his power, his majesty, and he led them through the Red Sea, they came out on the other side, and they get this great picture and power of the might and power of their God, and how there are no other gods, as God has literally humiliated all the Egyptian gods. Once we leave that time, then we move into a different section of Exodus, and where in which God is going to teach his people about what it is to have faith in him. And some of you may be thinking, well, why aren't these the people of Israel? You understand, God was forming the nation of Israel. God was taking this people, and they were setting them apart for them. Hi, ladies. How was, I just got to ask real quick. Sorry, total break. How was uh, Young Life Worker Crew? How was that? Was it good? You all exhausted? I'm so, I, just, I haven't seen them yet. I just wanted, uh, it was so great to see that. I saw you all sitting there. I was like, great. Was it great? Yeah, you tired? Yeah? A little bit. Okay. Well, welcome back. So glad you guys went. I, I want to connect with y'all and hear about that. I might have to buy y'all coffee this week to find out how that went. All right. Sorry, totally off the point there, but I was just like, saw that. I was really excited. Hey, when people go off to serve God and get uncomfortable for God, that's really amazing stuff. And I, and I love to bring light to that. And so we're going to hear more about that later. You guys are going to have to prepare a little something just later, just letting you know that so you can share it with the body. We need to be encouraged by that. So um, anyways, back to the story, right? So we go to the section of scripture here. And we're going in, and they're turning into this time of faith, and they're, they're, they're walking in the desert, and they're having to trust in God for their food. They're having to trust in the God for their water. They're having to trust in God for him to completely provide for them during this time. And he's teaching them, this is what it looks like to have faith. To have faith is to be completely reliant on God. But now God's brought them through that time, and he's brought them to Mount Sinai. And, and Mount Sinai... I mean, Dave did a great job last week of talking about Mount Sinai, the holiness of God, the sinfulness of men. They can't even touch the mountain. The earthquakes, lightning storms, we can't. I mean, talk about shock and awe. I mean, I've had some privilege of being in some military operations where we delivered shock and awe. That would have nothing compared to what went on during Mount Sinai during that time. I can only imagine the fear and the trembling that would have taken place as God's presence is on the top of Mount Sinai there with his people. And that would have been a very powerful and yet very terrifying moment. But during this time now, God is going to reveal to the people of Israel what it looks like to be faithful. Here's what it is to have faith, to lean and trust in God. But now it is that every day live out your faith and be faithful to the one true God. And so he's going to give them the Ten Commandments. We're going to start that today. We're going to cover the first four commandments today and the next six next week. So, wow, we're going to do a lot in the next two weeks, but we're going to do it, okay? 
And there's a reason for combining them this way, and we'll get into that in just a second. And so he's going to do that. And so during this time, he's going to show and demonstrate to the people of Israel what it is to be there, the people of God and faithful to him. But he begins here, and, and we read out of Matthew this morning because we understand that this fulfillment of Scripture takes place in whom? Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? Jesus, go with it, you know, right? Jesus is the complete fulfillment of scriptures. So when Jesus speaks into what has taken place in the Old Testament, we rightly understand what was being given in the Old Testament through Jesus Christ to us. And so we can't look at the Ten Commandments without looking first at what Jesus Christ said about the Ten Commandments, okay? And what did he say? The young lawyer comes to him and he's got this question. And the text tells us that, you know, he's come to test him. But to be, the, to be, you know, compassionate to the young lawyer, when he comes and he brings this question before Jesus, there are thousands of laws. Thousands. By this time, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and all the different religious leaders up to this point, in order to protect the law, protect Israel's people, they've added to the law quite significantly. And there's thousands of laws. So when this lawyer asked Jesus, what is the greatest law, what is the greatest commandment, he's saying, narrow down thousands of laws into one. Surely he thought, oh, I got Jesus here, right? It's like a good lawyer going between, you know, going and, and asking a defendant, you know, what, what are you going to do and how is this situation surely going to trump him in this situation? But Jesus responds perfectly and states that the greatest law is that you shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So what are the first four commandments? The first four commandments are an instruction how to love God. Look, open your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles with you this morning, we got Bibles in the back. We can hand them out to you. Um, if you need a Bible, don't be shy. Raise your hand. We want to put a Bible in your hands. And so you can read along. It's on page 828 in those Bibles. Um, so turn to eight, page 828 in those Bibles. If not, it's in, Matt, excuse me, in Exodus chapter 20 this morning. Exodus chapter 20. How many of you are aware on a public building or some other place that you've seen the Ten Commandments outside of a church or institute, but they're on a government institution wall. Yes? A few? They're in our nation's capital. They're in a lot of our state's capitals. They are being removed in a lot of different places. The Ten Commandments is something that is known by Christians and non-Christians alike. The Ten Commandments also served as a, a, a starting point for the people when they wrote the Constitution, Declaration of Independence. This is a starting point for people in understanding what it is and how it is that we're supposed to treat one another and how it is we're supposed to treat God. This is a fun, foundational and fundamental understanding and teaching in Scripture. And so oftentimes we can blow over this and breeze over it because it is something that is common, something that is we're used to. But I'd like us to take, be challenged this morning and look at this from a different perspective. And I was blessed to be given a different perspective by the big Bible that I brought this morning. I had my Bible. I was doing my sermon preparation last week before we went on vacation. And I usually do sermon prep out of this Bible. I had left that Bible at home when I was doing my time with God in the morning 
And so I reached up into my, my bookshelf and I pulled out this Bible. This is my mom's Bible. was my mom's Bible. And she made faithful notes in it. So that's one of those things I might just take a rabbit trail here for a second. I would encourage you to write in your Bibles. I know some people have, that's tough, right? Because you have reverence for the Word of God. And I'm not saying to be irreverent toward the Word of God. But what's really cool is, is I was opening this Bible up. And I was turning to Exodus chapter 20. My mom had highlighted and written in this text from a sermon that she'd heard. And I was doing my sermon prep, and I was preparing for it, and I was really, you know, looking at, oh, that's great. It's being, you know, that, that's good stuff, but I think I've got something better. And, 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 and I go write my outline, and I'm working on it, and I go home that night, and I am very restless, and I keep thinking about these different points that my mom had written down in her Bible. The next day when I returned to sermon prep, I was like, oh my God, I've got to revisit these, and these are going to be the points. So this is actually, I'm borrowing from a previous pastor, I don't know who it is, and a study that my mom had done, and going along these lines to look at this text of Scripture and help us understand what it looks like for us to love God. Before we get there, before we start talking about these different aspects, though, we have to begin with this understanding that God is deserving of our love. God is deserving of our love. And for some of you, you may say, well, duh. But for others of you, when you begin to think of God as Father, Father's deserving of love may be foreign concept to you. God demonstrates his worthiness of our love in the first two verses when he says, then God spoke all these words saying, I and the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The Israelites should love God because of what God has done and how God demonstrated his love towards them by delivering them from slavery. The Father is worthy of their love. Dave spoke of the suzerain vassal treaty last week, which basically is an, is an ancient Near Eastern treaty system that, that the reigning power, the ruling power, demonstrated their right to reign and rule by, being, by giving to or taking care of the people, the vassals. God has demonstrated that he is worthy to be worshipped. He's worthy to be Lord, God, King, by what he has done for the nation of Israel, by delivering them out of the hands of the Egyptians. God so lovingly continues to demonstrate that to us today through Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it speaks of Christ and it says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Does that sound familiar? That, that Exodus 21 and 2 in this passage here sound very familiar as, as Jesus Christ has delivered us from even something greater and that he's delivered us from the power of sin and death. He is worthy to be loved, worshipped, and adored. But we live in a messed up world. 
We have a messed up, sinful, broken understanding of love. Movies, TV shows, books, newspapers. I mean, it's all over the place. Love is a broken, misused word. And it's horrendous what's been done to the word love. And we need to look to a, a, a point in Scripture or someone in Scripture who perfectly demonstrates love, who is that example of love. So we're going to say, if we're going to look to love and say love is, we need to be able to put something to it. Otherwise, the world is going to lead us astray in what love is and what love should be. And we see that love is perfectly demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Perfectly demonstrated. You see, Jesus Christ is the true son of Israel. It's very interesting. The Bible calls that the Israelites are the son of Israel, small s. But Jesus Christ, when he comes, he becomes the capital S, son of God, son of Israel. That he is the one, the one that did it perfectly, that followed perfectly, that obeyed God perfectly, was one that never any of us could ever be. And so when we look at what it is to love God in these next three, we have a standard of Jesus Christ. So look here at verse, verse 3. We see this first command. You shall have no other gods before me. What's the first thing we learn about love for our God? It's that love is loyal. It's interesting in this context, every single time it is mentioned, you shall have no, and every time it says you, 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 it's, it's in the singular and so what's, what's being brought to the forefront of this passage is this idea and this understanding that each of us have an individual responsibility. The Israelites had an individual responsibility to love God. Each person was to love God. And as a nation, they were to love God as a whole people. They are to love God and to be loyal to him. You shall have no other gods before me. What does this mean? What is it to have gods? I mean, most of us in our homes or, or in our lives, we're not setting up pagan idols and we're not worshiping um, Baal or we're not worshiping Buddha or, you know, some of you may have come out of that. Um, I do have friends that have come out of the Buddhist lifestyle and they're now believers in Jesus Christ and they literally knew what it was to bow down to an idol. But most of us in the room have not experienced that. We have different gods. And in an attempt to kind of understand what, it, what is this? And give us an idea of what it would be to have a God. I began to look for different um, definitions of what gods would be. And Piper's got a pretty good one here. He says, what is an idol or what is a God? It is the thing loved or the person loved more than God. Wanted more than God. Desired more than God treasured more than God or enjoyed more than God. It could be a girlfriend. It could be good grades. It could be the approval of other people. It could be success in business. It could be sexual stimulation. It could be a hobby or a musical group that you are following or a sport or another activity or hobby. I was looking for some yard stuff the other day, he said. 
And I clicked on a video ad for a yard service, and three people came on, and all of them made the point that this yard service enabled them to brag that they had the best yard in the neighborhood. Piper thought, what a motivation. I want to have the number one yard in the neighborhood. And I saw that even a yard could be an idol. Or your own looks can be an idol. It could be anything. So Paul puts it like this in Romans 1.25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature. Anything that is created rather than the creator. What is it that you love more than God? That you want more than God, or desire more than God, or maybe even enjoy more than God. What are those things that our minds and our hearts get fixated upon? One thing that's become convicting to me is, as I've heard people talk about heaven and their reason and desire for going to heaven, I can't wait to see my spouse, my child, my friend, my mother, my brother, my sister. I can't wait to get to heaven and see those people. We're going to have such a great time. And nobody mentions, I can't wait to see Jesus. Let me tell you what, if you want to go to heaven for any other reason than to see Jesus, if he is not the most important reason you want to go to heaven, you got an idol. Because he's the reason we get, we, we get to go to heaven. He's the reason we should desire to go to heaven. He should be the most important thing upon our hearts and our lives. And a reason we're going, man, I want to go spend eternity with God and enjoy him and delight in him. And what's cool is I'm going to get to do it with other people. My sister's already there. My grandma's already there. We're going to get to celebrate Jesus together. But I want to see Jesus. What is it that, that is more important to us that we desire more than, than God. I mean, football's fun. I love football. We're coming up on football season. It has been a dry off season, okay? We're coming up. It's getting close. You know, football's going to be on the television again. Nebraska football, Denver Bronco football's going to be a great year. We, are, we have high hopes, okay? And, and even though the, the, the standings don't say so, we have high hopes, okay? And, and it's football season, right? But if I say I enjoy football more than I enjoy spending time with God, I've got a problem. Or if I enjoy spending time, more spending time with my wife than I do spending time with God and time with prayer with him, I've got a problem. I've got a God. I've got an idol. And the Bible says you shall have no other gods before me. What does it look like to be perfectly loyal to God the Father when we look to Jesus Christ? John 8, 38, for I have come down from heaven, Jesus said, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus had one purpose, one direction, one focus in his life, and that was to do the will of the Father. Jesus Christ was perfectly loyal to the Father. Could you imagine 
if all of us became committed to saying that, we, we, we exist for one reason and one reason, and that's to do the will of the Father and begin to live it and begin to breathe it and begin to understand it. And that we begin to, to understand, and what does that mean? We're all going to stop and be pastors. Good gravy, please don't do that. Okay? There's enough of us running around. What we need people is we need people where they're at, where God has put them, understanding that God has placed them there so that they can do the will of God right where they're at. That in, again, I'll use, you know, Vanderstelt's words, in the everyday stuff of life, we serve, we're loyal to God in the everyday stuff of life. Love is loyal. The next thing we read here, and as we look at this text, and starting in verse 4, I put my slides in the wrong order. There we go. You shall not make for yourself any idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water underneath. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to the thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, most of us here, we're not going to go home and whittle a little idol out and stick it on our mantle and begin to bow down and worship it. This is something that maybe is a little bit more, it's like I said earlier, a foreign concept to you. This idea of making idols and bowing down and worship them. But did you know we are in the business of making idols? But oftentimes the idols that we like to build come in a in, in little bit different realms. One of them could be, for example, our finances. Building up our retirement funds. If we begin to say, look what I've created my retirement fund, I put money in that. I worked really hard and we set aside money and I got this great retirement. Look what I've got. Look what I've done. Look what we've created. Versus rather saying, look what God has given to us so graciously that we had used for his kingdom work. We say, look what I've done. And the minute we start taking claim and we start taking um, authority for what God has done, guess what we're building up, folks? We're making that eyeball. We may as well get out our little pocket knife and start whittling away because we're making it or homes oh this is a this is one that you know when i was a kid i don't know if you ever had this experience and you probably did as a kid i remember going to certain people's homes in nebraska and then in colorado and then in arizona that mom and dad would give us the lecture and y'all ever given your kids the lecture before going into somebody's house this is how you're to go in hands in your pockets you shake hands you greet and then your hands go back in your pockets you don't touch anything Okay, and you as kids, you hated going to those homes. Come on, be honest here, because you're like, I can't play with anything. If we bounce the ball in the wrong direction, it's gonna hit one of those little pretty porcelain figures in Nebraska. Everybody was collecting those. What the precious, precious pro- moments? Precious, precious moments. Okay, I was gonna say precious promises, but that was probably precious moments, like those little things, right? And they had them up all over the place, and those were like huge warning signs: baseballs, footballs, tennis balls, racquetballs, destruction toys. I mean, and so you're like, oh, and so you're fearful going into those homes and, and you go into those homes, you're like, you're just walking in and you're, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is not a fun place to go and visit. And it's not definitely not a place that you felt welcomed and warmed and invited in to just have fun and participate in life in, right? And I, I remember I had a real gut check with that when we had, 
we'd had our house, we, we built the house up over by, Sun, by Suncrest in Suncrest neighborhood, and um, it was probably November. And November, December, and we were watching Judah and, and Benjamin, and they'd gotten hold of some of the girls' markers. And, and not in the back bedroom, but the front hallway. Jumping down the hallway and trying really cool. I mean, Judah was having a great time, and I can only imagine what was going on in his mind by what was displayed on the walls. And I remember, I mean, we we walked in and saw that was all over the place, and we're just going. It was one of those moments. And his little face. Judah, you know you're supposed to. And he's got that look, and he starts crying and. And what I loved is those marks on our walls. If you visited, you probably saw those marks on our walls for quite a while. They served as a reminder to me. What do I worship? Did we build this home? Or did God give it to us for his glory? And I get being respectful and taking care of what we have. It's not what I'm getting at. I'm saying when we worship something that we're so fearful to let other people into our own homes that we don't let them in and we, we keep them out because we're so afraid they're going to mess something up. Well, that's not your house, FYI. It's God's. And all of this stuff's going to burn someday. So are we going to use it for his glory or are we going to use it to worship and stress and be anxious and be fearful over and not invite people in and be hospitable. We're not to build up idols. We're not to create idols and worship them. Christ, again, is that perfect example of faithfulness. When we think of the faithfulness of Christ, sometimes our minds probably can oftentimes go towards the temptation of Christ, when Christ went out into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, didn't eat, fasted, and he was tempted by the evil one. Being extremely tired, being extremely thirsty, hungry, he was tempted by the evil one. And Christ remained perfectly faithful to God. But I don't think we quite understand that that wasn't the only time frame that Christ was tempted. Christ was a kid. He was a kid. He had siblings. I mean, you all have siblings. A lot of us, right? There's lots of temptation to sin when you have siblings. Amen? My sister bore the marks on her leg that I bit her to her grave. She wouldn't share her candy bar. You didn't come between me and a candy bar. Jesus Christ walked perfectly. He didn't sin. What about with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes? And they tested him. They mocked him behind his back. They accused him of horrible things. Did he sin once in dealing with him? No, not once. Even his disciples, his knucklehead disciples, even as they, he could have been like, I'm going to drop kick you to the North Pole. Come on, you kidding me? But he dealt with them lovingly, compassionately, and in a way that built them up and said the things that they needed to hear in order for their faith to grow and increase. Jesus perfectly executed obedience to God's perfect will and plan every single moment of every single day of his life. He was perfectly faithful.
Next, we're told in Exodus chapter 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Our love for God is to be reverent. And I'll be quite frank with you as a church that in America, churches all over are struggling to be reverent with the name of God. And I grew up with this understanding that to not take the Lord's name in vain wasn't to swear or cuss. That's what I always grew up with this understanding. But the more we study scripture, the more we understand that it goes beyond that. I remember playing sorry with my grandma. I mean, I would play sorry. The game sorry? Yes? A few folks? All right. So the game sorry where you're going around the board and my grandma Moore, she was kind of a, a stickler, um, and we were going around the board, and I remember as soon as I would like, get out, because my grandma, she, not, she was not one of those grandmas that let you win. <laughs> Didn't you all have a grandma like that? She was coming after you, okay? And until you got into that safe zone, you were, you were okay? And so if you beat grandma, you earned the victory, okay? You had something to brag about. And I remember, I'm like getting my, I've got my one two, three people in the safe zone. I'm going, yes. And I finally got that fourth one. And I go, yes, thank God. And she, oh boy, you thought I dropped the, the F-bomb or something. And she come unglued and she's like, don't you dare take the Lord's name in vain. And I was like, I was scared at that moment because my grandma was like a six foot tall, large woman, okay? And, and she could bring the wrath of God down on you. And, and, and I remember like looking at her and going, what did I do, grandma? She goes, you don't, speak, you don't speak the name of God like that. And I, and I get where she was coming from, maybe a little bit overreacting a little bit. But this idea, this understanding that my grandma, when you're speaking the name of God, it is with awe, with reverence, and with respect. And it's not trivial to be taken from some board game. But it's not just how we use the name of God. But when we look in Scripture, and I'm going to read something for you from John Calvin theologian that existed a long time ago he says it becomes to us it becomes us to regulate our minds and our tongues so as to never think or speak of god and his mysteries without reverence and great soberness and never in esteeming his works to have any feeling toward him but one of deep veneration deep respect it's not just how I speak it's how I think about God but it's even more than that the Israelites were being called to be God's people his nation and the people of Israel their name the Israelites people were associated with the name of God and so when the Hittites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and all these other nations around the Amalekites and all these other nations when they looked to Israel right when they looked to Israel who did they see they were supposed to see God because they were name bearers of God but when their actions when they disobeyed God they took the name of of God in vain and falsely proclaimed the name of God to other nations. 
all of a sudden, this idea of reverence towards God isn't just about what I think or about what I say. It's about how I live. Is my love reverent? Are my actions reverent to God? Uh, we were up on Coltis Lake in British Columbia this last week with a family vacation. We were having a great time. But hit Tuesday. And all of a sudden, I went to go to bed at Tuesday night, and I couldn't go to sleep. And what just kept coming to my mind was the irreverence I have shown God in my mind, in my speech, and in my actions. And I found myself confessing before God. Finally went to sleep about 1 o'clock. Had a great day with the kids on Wednesday. Went to bed Wednesday night. Couldn't go to sleep. More thoughts, words, and actions filled my mind. More confession, more repenting of those things. And the next morning, waking up Thursday night, same thing, Friday night. Okay, we're home. I Surely this is going to end. It happened again. I have failed in showing reverence to the name of God. In my conduct, in my thoughts, and in my speech. And believe it or not, that's not something that I'm scared to say it actually frees me up. Because when I can admit complete failure, that I'm stopping to strive to fix this on my own. I get to know the grace of God who heals, who has overcome failure through Easter Sunday. And I get to get back up and I get a, a day like today where I can come up and spend time talking with you about revering God's name. And I can say I've been forgiven for not and I can keep trying to. Because of the grace of God, not underneath my own power and ability, but because of God's grace towards us. Because of the one who's done it perfectly. You see, Jesus Christ perfectly revered God. Pray in this way, hallowed be your name. Jesus Christ in John 8, 49 said, when he was accused by religious leaders of having a demon, he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father. Because of Jesus Christ's perfect reverence for the Father, we can have forgiveness for our irreverence. But brothers and sisters, we don't get to have forgiveness for that until we accept that we've failed. And I don't know where you're at this morning on that.
But there's freedom and freedom in confessing failure. And until we confess failure, we didn't get, we don't get to know the Redeemer, because the Redeemer is Jesus Christ, and He redeems our failures. But if we continue to say, I haven't failed, and I'm still doing this on my own, until we confess full failure to God, God, I have failed to do this, we don't get to know the Redeemer. And we don't get to know the love that he has for us, nor do we get to love him in the way that we're supposed to. The final thing that we read here is something that may perplex you in, in understanding how does this fit in loving God? And it's this final portion of scripture here, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath your, to the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and he made it holy. For some of you may say, Jesus never commanded us to keep the Sabbath. And you'd be correct in so saying. He never commanded us to take a 24-hour period of day and set it aside, but he did command us to enter into his rest. You see, love for God is an intimate love. Gentlemen, pop quiz. Most of you in the room, or wives will probably agree with this, how do you show you love your wife? Oh dear, silence. You're like, you're scared for the right, really? There's not a bad answer here at this point, unless it's a bad answer, then we'll do it. I know for my wife, it's time. Uh oh, what did you say? I guess she wasn't very hopeful you were going to answer that one right. Time. My wife would say, Scott can say I love you all day long, but if he doesn't give me his time, does he really love me? You see, how can we say we love God and not spend time with him? Our love with God is to be an intimate love. time where which we enter into that rest that is provided us through our Savior Jesus Christ. We listen for the voice of God in prayer and in the reading of scriptures. We desire to know his voice, to hear from him. We desire to spend time with him. Jesus Christ once again served as the perfect example of what it was for an intimate relationship with the Father. I'm going to read just a few scripture passages to you. There are more. And I challenge you this week to go look them up. 
Luke 3, 21. Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. Matthew 14, 23. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Mark 6, 46, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. Luke 6, 12, it was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Mark 1, 35, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went out to a secluded place and was there praying. Luke 5.16, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. If the perfect son of God thought it was necessary, knew it was necessary to get away and spend intimate time alone with God the Father. And Jesus was, he was perfect. How much more so do we need to be intimate and spend time with our Father? On your bulletin program, right now, I want you to write down. And I ask you to be confessional at this point. Write down how many hours or minutes a week you spend time in intimate, alone time with God. I want you to write it down. Reading his word and prayer, not being distracted, not I'm driving on my way to work listening to scripture. I'm not, that, no. Set aside time. The percentage of hours in a week, any quick mathematicians at this point can throw that number out. Do you think that is a demonstration of your love for God? It isn't for me. Christy and I have looked to this fall and we have made some decisions to make our life a little less chaotic and a little more organized and get focused so I've resigned as the head football coach of the junior high I've resigned as the weightlifting coach in the mornings I spend time with my kids because Christy's going to be working a little more but I want my Fridays dedicated time on my Fridays to be alone with God I need a Sabbath. I need time of rest. I need that intimacy with God. And the more vacations we took this summer, the more desperately I realized I needed alone time with God. What do you need to do? What do you need to do right here today to... To say, I, I want to love God. Is there, is there idols in your life that you've recognized? I've got to do away with those idols. I've got to confess that. I've got to confess I've been 
failing to put Christ on the throne of my heart. Or maybe there's, there's things that you're taking credit for, houses, cars, accounts, marriages, relationships that you're taking credit for, that you're not giving credit to God, and therefore you're taking the credit for what God has done. Or, or maybe you're here this morning and you've you're not been faithful to God and you've been irreverent towards God and, and how you've thought, spoken, or acted towards him. Or maybe this morning you're realizing that you have not been intimate with God and you need to be. You see, we wanted to talk about all four of these things together in one setting because we want you to understand this is what it looks like to love God. He gave us a manuscript and it's so beautiful. He just doesn't arbitrarily tell us, tell us to love him and then not tell us how to do it. He's told us how to do it. And so we wanted to cover all four things in one setting, and it's going to take you a while to unpack this, and I recognize that, and that's cool. Take your time unpacking this. And continue to ask yourself, am I loving God? Do I have idols? Am I being irreverent? Am I being intimate with him? Am I being faithful? You see, the most amazing thing is, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his love towards us, and we in turn get to demonstrate it back towards him. There's a great picture in scripture of what it looks like to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Where do we have to go to find that picture? Back to the beginning. When it says that Adam and Eve were naked before God and were unashamed. They loved God perfectly. Now, granted, it didn't last long. That's where we're at today. But there was those moments. For how long, we don't know it lasted, but we know there was time that they had with God when they didn't need to put on fig leaves. They didn't need to cover themselves up. They didn't need to be ashamed. And it wasn't just the nudity of bodies that they were ashamed of. What they were ashamed of was the grotesqueness of their sin, the sin that they had committed against God. Where are we trying to put a fig leaf right now with God? Where are we saying, I love you, God, just don't look here? You see, Jesus Christ came to redeem us. The gospel, remember what the gospel is? God created us to worship and glorify him. We rebelled against God. Christ came to redeem us, and someday we'll be completely restored. God has taken us back to what we were made to be. God is, Jesus Christ is making it possible for us to be forgiven of our failures where we fail to love God rightly and gives us courage and hope and redeems those areas and so that we can pursue loving him more and more each day. And just imagine it. It's kind of a weird thing. Maybe you're like, maybe it's a bad picture, but here we go. You got the fig leaves, right? But each day you want to tear a fig leaf off before God. And you want to be able to stand before God fully exposed 
which you already are. Okay? God sees it all. It's just a matter of us acknowledging him seeing it. We're already exposed before him. But now for us that we might each day understand we're going to remove something else. I want, to, I want something else to follow. I want to, I want to confess. How many of you go, I want to confess and repent today? Well, we should. Every day we should wake up going, Lord, expose something so that I can say I'm a failure here so I can have your grace applied to it and I can be redeemed and begin to move on from that. Every day we should wake up with the desire to confess and repent. And not the confession of like, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I bit you for that candy bar when I really wasn't. But, you know, but a true heartfelt confession and repentance where, Lord, I want to stop sinning. I want to stop not loving you well. I want to be faithful. I want to be loyal. I want to be reverent. I want to be intimate with you. Christ has made it possible for us to enter into his rest. And so we think it's very appropriate that our mission statement as a church family says that we desire to be a spiritual where you and others can enter into here and experience the rest of God. Please join me in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your incredible love and grace and mercy towards us. And Lord, may we know that all of us have fallen short this morning of loving you perfectly. Lord God, we confess that this morning and Lord we rejoice in the grace and the forgiveness that is made possible because of the one who did it perfectly Jesus Christ may we draw in to him today as he took our failures upon himself he became our failure so that we might know what it is to overcome And to have hope in a future where we'll someday we will love you perfectly. In Jesus' name we pray, and with the power of the Holy Spirit.